Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, hello everybody, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you on a Sunday. It's a Sunday episode. And my guest today is Daryl Alejandro Holness, author of the poetry collection Stepmotherland, available now from Notre Dame Press. Here is Daryl Alejandro Holness reading a poem from the new collection entitled Praise Song for My Mutilated World. Ode to the Japanese radio oozing hot tunes in the hot afternoon of my childhood at age four in La Ciudad de Panama at my abuelo's house. Ode to the black women made of air and imagination who Pito and I dance with in his living room in La Rosita, the rosy part of Rio Abajo known for turning bullets into blooms. Ode to La Olua Braz, the early 90s Brazilian siren in Gaoma who seduces us into dancing with our dream girls and away from the bullet-bitten bodies plastered across the front page of La Critica News. Ode to the famous mulatto melody howling from the bellows of the accordion on the record and to the Portuguese words I pronounce in near Spanish as I try to sing along to the forbidden dance song. A recordação vai estar com ela onde for. A recordação vai estar para sempre onde for. There isn't much forbidden in my family, except piedra and hierba and the tiroteo from their trade. There isn't much forbidden in my family, except pistolas y secuestros and chanchudos y corruptos who've become piedra slaves. Pito and I save the negras in our arms from piedreros, drug dealers, and the cartel with our moreno swing hips, dips, and spins to the two-beat carimbo drum rhythm stronger than the pulse thumping through my little boy body until I can't tell the difference between my corazón and the radio's tong tong until our dream girls become our real women, until we've praise danced our world back to being one that little brown black boys like me can believe in. Okay, that was Daryl Alejandro Holness reading a poem entitled Praise Song for My Mutilated World from his new collection entitled Stepmotherland. 
Holness is an Afro-Panamanian American writer, performer, and educator. He's a hyphenate, multi-talented, and works as a college professor in New York City. His other poetry collection, entitled Migrant Psalms, is out on Northwestern Press. That came out in 2021. This new collection, Stepmotherland, is at once political and personal, mournful and celebratory and musical. Daryl Alejandro Holness is a wonderfully musical writer, as you just heard, as he performed his poem. Stepmotherland is about coming of age and coming out and coming to America. It's about the immigration experience. It's about his personal history. And I, you know, all of this stuff just really shines through on the page. This is a very talented human being, and I had a great time meeting him and talking with him about his life and work. You will hear that conversation in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Ig, publisher of my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. What do you know? Be Brief and Tell Them Everything is a work of autofiction, and it is available at long last this week. May 10th is the official pub day. It will be available wherever books are sold in trade paperback and ebook editions. There is also an audiobook edition available from Tantor Media and Highbridge Audio. That you can get wherever you get audiobooks. So for more information, just go to bradlisty.com, my official website. Technically, as of this moment, you can pre-order it, and then it'll be delivered as soon as it becomes available on May 10th, uh, and that's when the book is available widely. So one more time, my new novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available from the good people at IG. Another reminder, I will be guesting on this program this Wednesday. I'm going to be the guest on my own show. It feels like something that should happen. Steve Almond will be interviewing me. He was my guest just last week in episode 770, and we decided to switch chairs, and he interviewed me. The tables have been turned, so stay tuned for my guest appearance on my own show on Wednesday. I am also going to be doing some events in the days ahead. Uh, On Monday, May 9th, I will be launching the book at Chevalier's in person here in Los Angeles. Chevalier's Books at 7 p.m. On Thursday, May 12th, I am doing a virtual event in conversation with author Chelsea Hodson for Powerhouse Arena in Brooklyn at 7 p.m. Eastern. So please RSVP for that at Powerhouse on Thursday, May 12th. On Monday, May 16th, there's going to be a little party at Stories Books in Echo Park. I am going to be reading with some L.A. author pals of mine, Nada Alec, Duncan Birmingham, Melissa Chadburn, and Milo Martin. That starts at 7 p.m. over at Stories. And then on Tuesday, May 17th, another virtual event, this one for Exile in Bookville, a great bookstore in Chicago. I will be in conversation with Leah Dietrich, That starts at 8 p.m. Eastern. All right, and there are more. There are more events. If you want to get the full list, just go to bradlesty.com. Click on events. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns, depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, 
and The Occasional Triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay. So let's get to the main event, my conversation with today's guest, Daryl Alejandro Holness. His new poetry collection, Stepmotherland, is available now from the University of Notre Dame Press. It is the winner of the Andres Montoya Poetry Prize. And it's just a wonderfully rendered, very vibrant collection from an artist of great range, great talent, who clearly has a bright future ahead. So I'm just very pleased to get to share this conversation with all of you right now. Here he is, folks. This is Daryl Alejandro Holness. And one more time, his new poetry collection is entitled Stepmotherland. Yes, I'm in the Dominican Republic, and I'm here researching and working on a new project that I'm super excited about. I can't really talk about it yet, but it is very inspiring to be in this surrounding. Okay, so I think this is an interesting aspect to your work and one that I'd like to hear you comment on. And it has to do with the work that you do as a poet. It has to do with the work that you do as a playwright. I imagine it filters into your work as a performer as well. But you have a background doing research-intensive creative works. You have mm-hmm. a background that includes anthropology and ethnography. And I'm imagining that's some of what you're up to in the Dominican. Is that correct? It's always a part of my work. It's a part of my creative process. So even when I'm not doing a work that has a scholarly outcome in the form of an academic paper that I might present at a conference. It's it's so ingrained in my creative process now that even when I'm writing something that where I take a lot of creative liberty and creative freedom, I still, the first thing I always do is put together a book list uh, to conduct a literary review so that I can see what other people have written about the topic and to really absorb as much as there is out there that I can access about whatever it is that I'm interested in experiencing and then holding that truth alongside my own experience of that place, of that history, of that object, of whatever that subject is. And so, yes, it's definitely a part of what I'm doing here. And I'm so excited to not only be in Las Terrenas because it's beautiful, but to also have a chance to explore the area and to get to know the locals in the in the area as well, because they have such a rich and beautiful history that I'm learning every day that I'm here. And they're really warm and welcoming. And, you know, I'm always excited about that. And, and I think one of the reasons why what drew me to anthropology is that at the heart of it, I'm a people person. A lot of poets are not. <laughs> But I am a, I'm an extrovert. I'm a people person. I love to be in community. And so that's, that's partly why I'm here. I'm getting to know the, the people, not only in Samana, but also on the island. And I'm excited about that. 
So I'm wondering about this, this extroversion that you describe and how much of it is related to coming from a big family and being the youngest. I believe you're the youngest, right? Yes, yes, that's right. That makes some sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was born into a very large family with a very, with and any large family has a complicated dynamic. And so my dad is one of nine and my mom only has two siblings, but I still have many cousins on both sides. I have over 45 cousins just on my dad's side. And so as you can imagine, any holiday and in Panama, there are many holidays. So we're not just talking about, you know, for my family, it would have been Christmas and, and the the American Thanksgiving. But I'm also talking about any sort of Independence Day, any kind of Holy Week, Semana Santa. I mean, all of these moments when you get together with family, my get togethers have always been very large, especially in Latin America. We have a lot of um, tias and tios de cariño who are like your parents' best friends who you call uncle and auntie who are not blood related to you. And um, you know, you grow up with their kids, like they're your cousins. And so I come from a very, very large community. And when you are among the youngest in that community, you, I think, have to always find a way to really raise your voice for people to listen to you, you know, because you're the least experienced and you're the least known and you have little authority in that dynamic. And so if you want to be taken seriously, to one, know what you're talking about, which maybe is like where the research comes in. And two, you have to really be able to communicate, you know, efficiently to a variety of different audiences who are the members of your family and navigate all of those dynamics of, of ego. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah. makes sense. And I was, th you know, it's funny because I just recently I was reading or rereading an interview with uh, the author Kurt Vonnegut and he was j just incidentally was the youngest in his family. And he was talking about humor in his work and how he believes that its origins could be found in the fact that he was the youngest and that the only way for him to break into a conversation effectively at the dinner table in his family as the youngest was to say something funny. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you know, because otherwise everybody just wanted to have adult conversations and it was his way in. And I'm wondering too, based on my research, because I know you were a very musical child, uh, so mm -hmm. much, so much so that your nickname was radio. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, you know, I can imagine you as a child kind of being a ham. I could imagine you being silly or funny and getting attention that way, but I could also imagine you using this voice of yours was that part of your strategy as a child in this big family? Were you performing? You know, were you singing? I don't really, I don't really think that I had a strategy. I think it, it's more like, um, I don't know if it's trial and error, but it's, I just fought, I just did what I wanted to do. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And I think when you're four, you know, and seven and those kinds of ages, you are, getting to know your body. And I just remember, I was always excited about how your body is an instrument, how I could treat my body like a drum. And so I'd always be like just drumming on my thighs, on my knees, you know, on my shoulders and making music that way. And music always really made me feel good and interesting and complicated, but it was always, it was there were all of these feelings that were associated with my with my being and 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 you know being an adult 
being an academic, being a scholar, you're in your head so much that I find that turning back to music is a way that I can remember to be in my body and then also be present, which is also something that I learn in meditation. And so I'm, I'm always excited about being in touch with my inner child because so much of that is based in music, but so much of that is also based in the body. And, you know, really listening to what my voice sounds like and to really listen to that timbre, that vibration, that resonance, you know, that's me, that's me tuning into to myself in a way and like appreciating um, my own body and, you know, and when you're in your 30s and your body starts to change and you don't look like you're 19 anymore and you know, every <laughs> wait, um, wait, wait till you're 46 <laughs> <laughs> and every slice of pizza and every like, yeah. glass of beer, you know, you can see it yeah. in your body and you feel it. Uh, I think I'm always looking for ways to appreciate my body. And so much of that has to do with the sounds that it produces. Well, I'll tell you, I think this, this turning off of the mind of the thinking mind and getting present and, uh, just sort of being in your body, that is a gift. Because I, you know, I was relating to you when you were talking about being an academic and being locked up in your head a lot. That is where I squarely remain. <laughs> uh, I have very little, like if I go to a concert and people are dancing, I can sort of, you know, I can sort of do this thing. That's a very white guy mm-hmm. thing, you know, but I cannot be unencumbered or like I cannot with a sense of like abandon be inside my body. I, it's just not something I've been able to do yet. I, maybe later, who knows when I'm, maybe I'll be one of these elderly guys who finally unlocks at like a wedding or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I envy, you know, I envy people who are musical, who have that kind of effortless, seemingly effortless ability to access their child self or that lack of self-consciousness or whatever it is. You know, that quality is really enviable to me. I think it's something that you can cultivate and work at you know, no matter who you are. And I've read and taught sections of Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way. And, you know, classic book, 25, 25th anniversary, I think is this year. It's funny, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I just had a conversation about Julia Cameron and The Artist's Way on this show in a recent episode with an author for whom that book was instrumental. Uh, she mm. helped her write her book, so... Yeah, for so many people, that book is instrumental because it teaches you that your creative process can be separate from your editorial process. And so for a lot, a lot of people are encumbered by the little editor in their head that's like, that's not a good sentence or that's an ugly painting or like, why are you singing that way or whatever? Um, or like, that's not how a dancer moves or that's not what a poem is, right? And I think part of Julia's, uh, approach is to separate those experiences and so when you write something in your morning pages you put them away and you don't look at it for two weeks and you keep writing every day and you develop a writing process that's about self-expression self-exploration and um, contemplation uh, and then if you want to turn it into something that's publishable and you want to p- put it through an editorial process you know, your own before you send it out to anybody else, then you can do that after, separately, you know? And I think um, finding ways to just cultivate 
your creative self is a huge part of what I teach in my classes, where I say, you know, theater, the reason why we call, one of the reasons why we call it a, a play is because you are playing around. And if whatever you're making, you're not having fun making it, then you should stop. I always tell my students, you know, like, find a way into this that brings you joy, even if the narrative that you're exploring is related to trauma, there's still some kind of level of satisfaction and joy that can come from telling the story, you know, sharing the experience and some kind of healing oftentimes that can come from sharing stories of trauma, you know. So like whatever whatever the case is, find the joy that's there. And, um, you know, I think that ultimately that's what we do as kids, right? We're just, we're always looking for that, for that high. Like we want to like run around outside and then we when we get tired we want to like roll in chocolate and then when we <laughs> are like done with that we're just going to like i don't know you know just keep exploring and trying to find that high that makes us happy so it's out there yeah it's funny you it. say you you say that and i'm thinking of my daughter who is 11 and makes all these great like videos and is very creative you know will make art or videos or will write something and she's at an age where she is maybe just coming into some self-consciousness creatively. It's not fully there yet, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of uh, mourning the fact of its arrival because <laughs> like you're saying, kids have this beautiful access to joy and this kind of freedom, you know, where they're not really worried so much about how something's going to be received. It's just for the, the pure fun of it. And the results are kind of astonishing a lot of the time, you know, and it's very easy as an artistic person to look at something my daughter will put together and just be envious. Like, wow, she just had a lot of, mm -hmm. she just had a lot of fun with this. And it's like really good and interesting. And like, you know, maybe has more life in it than something that I've spent eight months noodling with or what, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, there's that access and immediacy. And it makes me think of something I think Picasso said. It's like that famous quote about how he spent his entire life learning how to paint like a child again or something, you know, <laughs> uh, that makes some sense, right? You're kind of trying to get back yeah. to that, that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think about experimenting with sound in my poems, the way that I used to play with sound as a child when I wanted instruments that we didn't have, or uh, so like we might have a piano or a keyboard, but not a drum set. Um, you know, uh, I used to, I ended up learning saxophone because I used to always sing saxophone parts in songs because I wanted to play the saxophone and we'd listen to, you know, like you name it, you know, Kenny G or like whoever. All of my jazz friends are rolling their eyes that I just said the word Kenny and G. But I just, I, I try to find that every time I, I write a poem and I, that's why I think there's so much hope in the book because I would oftentimes write about social justice or important historical events like the U.S. invasion of Panama, you know, um, or personal challenges that I've had. But the experience of writing the poems for me has always been one where I'm searching for healing. I'm searching for hope, where oftentimes I start writing from a place of despair, and I'm turning to the page because I'm reaching for hope. I want to find the joy that I can't find right now because I'm lost in the misery of, of whatever moment, right? That's the topic of the poem. But I want to leave the poem 
ha- you know, having arrived somewhere else. Hmm. You know, it's so. funny that you say that. It makes some sense. I feel like there's an incredible vitality to these poems. I feel the joy in them. They do not come off as morose, even if they're dealing with difficult subject matter. There's mm-hmm. definite musicality in, in uh, the poems. I also feel or felt, you know, all throughout the collection, very strongly this sense of community and family that you talked about earlier. And this sense of rootedness in place in Panama, your childhood there, your love for your family. Like Mm -hmm. I couldn't help but feel a sense of warmth and interest in your upbringing because it sounds like you were surrounded by some pretty extraordinary people. Absolutely. You know, I was in graduate school and I had this friend named Eric who was an anthropologist and an archaeologist. And he just looked at me one day and he said, wow, you were really loved as a child. And I, 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 it was, it was the first moment that I actually reflected on that and like what impact that had. And I do think that one of the good things about growing up in a family that's so big is that there's lots of love everywhere, you know, at least there wasn't in my upbringing. And so that love, you find it all throughout the book. But as I was saying earlier, it's often, you know, my my dad, um, I dedicated the poem Ode to My Father, the Captain to My to my Father, um, when he retired from uh, being a canal port captain in the Panama Canal. Uh, and I was sad because it was the end of an era. And frankly, he was sad too because <laughs> he didn't want to retire. I mean, not really, you know, like it was time and whatever. And so it's, he's doing it. But if he could have worked till he was 100, he probably would have. He really, really loved his job. And it was how he identified, still alive. And I wanted to find a way to celebrate a lot of the wonderful work that he has done and the legacy that he's a part of. And in that poem, there's a reflection on the transatlantic slave trade and what it means to go from being cargo on a ship to being the captain of a cargo ship navigating through the Panama Canal. And, you know, I'm taking the sort of bittersweetness of his retirement and the sadness that he's feeling and the kind of nostalgia that I'm starting to feel. And I'm taking the the challenges that come from the transatlantic slave trade and that awful history. But I'm I'm finding a way to honor my father and his sacrifices through the poems. So, you know, even when not everything in my family is just, you know, like that nice and sweet, right? But but I'm I'm desperately trying to find a way to to celebrate the good moments and hold on to the good bits of it, you know, because that's that's what will carry me over into the next generation. You know, that's what makes me want to turn the page of my own life is knowing that there were these wonderful moments and these sacrifices that amounted to something that meant something that that made an impact. Sure, sure. And in terms of the the size of your family and having that sense of being loved and surrounded by love and also having a strong sense of community and just safety you know i think for a child in particular when you have all these aunts and uncles and even like family friends as you said who function as aunts and uncles essentially uh, you know when you have that all around you it's such a blessing like it's such a powerful thing in your life that resonates for the rest of your life. I think, you know, you can, 
whenever I meet somebody who's had that kind of upbringing, it sort of clicks into place and makes sense to me. You can kind of tell. It's like, oh yeah, this person has a certain solidity about them that maybe in the absence of such a thing might not be there. And I'm curious to know if the if there was like geographic concentration, like as you were being raised in Panama, like we were, you know, your family's very big. Was everybody kind of close by? And were you constantly seeing family? And could you walk down the street to family members' houses? And just trying to get a sense of what it was like for you, you know, day to day. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it really depends on what era in my life because we had two family homes that I grew up in in Panama until I was 17. And when I was, uh, I think we were in our first home until I was maybe eight or nine. And in that context, my grandmother was maybe five minutes away in a car. And my godfather, who's my dad's cousin and his whole family, they were maybe about 10 minutes away in a car. Um, I had several cousins in my neighborhood whose houses I could walk to and a really close family friend that lived across the street and, and we grew up like brothers. It was uh, a very close proximity to a lot of the, my family members and, and family friends as you were, as you could imagine. And I think as you were positing. And then when I, uh, we moved to Hong Kong, which is on the canal zone, we're the first black family to be in that part of the canal zone. And because uh, the canal has a has a history that reflects racial segregation in the United States. There was a silver roll and gold roll. So black employees were paid differently. And um, non, non-U.S. white employees also were paid differently. Uh, and even if you worked for the Panama Canal, if you were black or any other type of non-white person and you were not from the US, you could live in certain areas of the zone, but not in, and not in others. And so we moved into a, a part of the canal zone that had historically only exclusively been for white um, folks from the US and, you know, who were paid in the gold role. And so when we moved there, uh, eventually bought that house from the U.S. government, and then that's where I ended up growing up. I was very removed, actually, from all of those family members who were not around me. But it gave me access to other privileges and was really cool. And I I don't know, I love that house, too. And I loved my neighbors, and I had a good time growing up there. Um, but it was sort of like this separation that was then even further furthered even more when I moved to the United States you know and I was even further away from my family and I think you're always trying to to build community wherever you go when you're an immigrant um but I think also I'm always trying to build family wherever I go as well you know having when you when you know what that feels like and, you know, even when we moved to the suburbs, I would still see my family every weekend. And eventually we ended up moving my mom's parents in with us into that house so that we could take care of them. And that was some of the those are some of the most cherished memories I have 
growing up in my teenage years, you know, which your teenage years are all about like who's popular at high school and what college you want to get into and your first kiss and your first date and all the stuff that has nothing to do with people that you're related to because you want to like become an adult and you want to emerge and be your own person and all this kind of stuff. And uh, But I have these really beautiful memories of being a teenager and having my grandmother and my grandfather still be around me and take care of me and um, kind of spoil me. And I dedicate a poem to my grandmother in the book called Bread Pudding Grandmama. I was going to say, I was just going to mention that poem, which I love. Yeah. And so I was 19 when I wrote that poem and I had, I was just, I loved my grandmother's bread pudding and I asked her to make me, to, to show me how she made it. And I, she did. And then when we were done, I asked her for the recipe written down and she said, you know, I'm tired. I just showed you how to make this. Now, you know, so you can write it down, you know? And I was like, yeah, I, I guess. And then I was like, well, let me run upstairs and write it down right now before I forget. And so I ran upstairs to my bedroom and I wrote down this recipe that I had just learned from experiencing it with her. And the poem literally poured out of me right then. And it's been revised and modified over the years, but it is, I think, a, a poem that also has a 19-year-old or, you know, sort of like a young adult, late teen POV. And so I do like to talk about how old I was when I first drafted the poem because I think as I've revised it, you know, over the years and I've gotten older, I always wanted to maintain that p perspective because it is a point of view of, of, of an adult, but someone who is still very much impacted and affected and still being raised in a way by a grandparent. And so I really cherish the ways that my grandparents were still raising me even when I was, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19 until they died and I carry their spirit with me everywhere I go, especially because my grandmother loved to travel and so do I. So I know that wherever they are there, every time I get a stamp on my passport, you know, they're rooting for me to keep going. Right. So that's lovely. And I think too, there's something lovely about this small moment of a uh, grandmother passing along uh, like a cherished family recipe for a dessert, which by the way, bread pudding, I think is my favorite dessert when it's, when it's made well. I love bread pudding. Delicious. Uh, it's delicious. Right. When it's done well, it's the best. And, but I, you know, I'm, there's, there's a lot of deeper meaning, you know, it's, it could be easy to just kind of write it off as like, oh yeah, this is just a family dessert. You can serve it on holidays or whatever. But you know, these, these kinds of traditions and the act of cooking and making this sweet treat I don't know. I think that you can find a lot of deeper meaning in it in the ways that we relate to life and suffering and even oppression uh, or, you know, just, uh, you know, like it's a way of pushing back almost against the difficulties of life. Joy as resistance is something that is key to the human experience, you know, in, in many different cultures and communities. And I think that it's especially vital in the black community that I'm a part of, you know, being a black Panamanian. And so every time we celebrate 
we're not only celebrating, um, you know, the joys of life, like our achievements, but we're also uh, celebrating having survived the challenges that we have faced. And I do think that there's something really um, resilient about black joy. And um, I'm always... I, I'm always interested in exploring it as a form of resistance um, because it's one where I get to release a lot of stress that is related to any kind of racialized trauma. And it's also one where I can look forward. Like it's a great foundation to continue to build on. Um, and it's and it's the kind of love that I want to be able to pass on to a new generation. And it's the kind of love that I cherish, you know, it being passed down to me. Uh, and you're right that sometimes that that love looks like a recipe. So I want to talk about your family a bit more because you come from a family that seems pretty amazing. Like it's a, a family that has so much service imbued into it, this impulse to serve, lots of civil servants, teachers, politicians, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you are coming from a pretty strong tradition in that sense. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it affected you growing up? Yeah, absolutely. My father and my mother both would emphasize civic responsibility to us from an early age. And there is a gym named after an uncle of mine who's uh, actually a cousin of my grandfather's and his legacy is a part of the community in Rio Abajo in Panama. And so my father would sponsor basketball teams, their jerseys and et cetera, from the kids of that neighborhood and take me there with him oftentimes to give those jersey out, jerseys out to the kids and would talk to me about how it's important to always give back to the community that you come from. And if you can give beyond the community that you come from to give to anyone who's in need. And, and that oftentimes the, a community can only really count on itself. And so when you look at Local politics in Panama, it's just like when you look at local politics in the United States, there's lots of racism, there's lots of corruption. And if you are not, if you as a community member are not looking out for your community, oftentimes no one else is. And you never really know what situation you'll be in or what situation your family will be in. And so to not really emphasize the differences but to really spend time building bridges. And so being able to provide even like jerseys and basketballs and things of that nature meant that it was one less thing that these kids would have to worry about and that they could focus more on the joys and the skills that they would develop playing basketball and the sense of community and belonging that they could find when they would connect with each other on the court. And so we were building bridges within the community so that other people could also build bridges between each other. And, um, <laughs> you know, the building of bridges, uh, you know, is like a constant metaphor for Panamanians because we're considered the bridge of the Americas. Oh, right. You know, and so it's a, 
metaphor that is like universal, but it's also like very specific to what it means to be Panamanian for a lot of people. And um, I'm I'm happy to constantly think of my work as as uh, attempting to continue that legacy and continue that tradition. And so you'll find that the book talks about all sorts of identities and it talks about intersectionality. And I'm thinking about new rhetoric around race and identity that we have, you know, especially coming out of the United States. And for me, all of these, all of this new language is not really about separations. All of this new language is to find a way to talk about these differences so that, that we can find the universality and specificity. Because it's not that we need to erase these differences in order to find our commonalities. I actually think that we find our universalities in the specificity and in that specificity of our differences, right? Because it becomes a way for us to understand each other better. And I learned that from growing up in Panama, but also from literature, because I think the best literature does that. It it gets to the marrow of the bone so that you can understand how this animal's heart beats so that you can understand how it breathes, how it moves. And then once you understand that it's alive, right, and and that it's organic, then you see your, your own mortality in it when you look at that animal, whatever that animal might be, you know, whether it's like an actual person or you were talking about society or civilization or culture, like, and so that's always what I'm trying to get at with my writing. And it, it's inspired by my love of, of great literature and also my experiences as a human being. The other thing that I was thinking about as you were talking is related to comments that you've made in previous interviews about your artistry and about your artistic education, in particular in your youth in Panama, and how resourceful everybody is and how much of a DIY kind of punk uh, like punk uh, impulse there is uh, when it comes to the arts. And you talked earlier about using your body as a drum. You talked earlier mm -hmm. about singing the saxophone parts in songs because you didn't have a horn on hand. And then mm -hmm. you, later, you later learned how to play. But all of this to me seems of a piece. You know, there's a self-reliance in it. There's an acceptance of responsibility. There's a recognition that if you don't do it, maybe nobody will, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's a great industriousness and creative energy and positivity in it that I think is really admirable. And I can see this, you know, I can see echoes of this in the work that you've gone on to do in, as an adult, you know, not only as a poet, but as a playwright as a anthrop you know in an anthropological or ethnographical context or as a performer or as a teacher you know you're doing all these things or as a, ph a philanthropist i mean you you're doing a lot of different things and you know hearing you talk about these experiences in your youth and um you know politically service wise culturally artistically it, the pieces of the puzzle fit together Thanks, thanks. You know, I think a lot of this comes from a Caribbean spirit that is the spirit of self-determination and having to make a dollar out of 15 cents, you know, wanting to 
whatever your goal is, whatever your dream is, figuring out a way to realize it despite the limited resources that you might have, whether it be on your island, you know, thinking about uh, what I've learned from my time in Cuba, what I've learned from my time in the Dominican Republic, or if it's uh, if you're growing up in the context of a dictatorship and I happen to be raised by people who had endured not only one but two dictatorships in Panama and who had experienced various levels of um, limitations, you know, especially limit limitations re- re- regarding resources not just financial, but just even access to products, access to technology that might not have been available when when they were growing up. And so then I was raised to figure it out. You know, like my dad would be like, if you don't, if you have a project and it requires, let's just say crayons and you don't have crayons, then, you know, he taught me that you could go (laughs) into the rainforest and Pull some colorful rocks to actually paint color into whatever drawing that you might be developing. Like how the the earth is there for you to to benefit from. And I've been recently thinking about how to be a good citizen is to be a steward of these natural resources, which is you know thinking about like a indigenous Native American perspective and relationship to the earth. And I'm a part Choco descent. Um, I'm sorry, can you, can you a, say that again? A, You're part Choco descent? Choco, yeah. It's a, an indigenous group in, in Panama. And this idea that we should and can benefit from the Earth's resources as long as we, we are stewards of those resources so that they're still around for the next generation to come. Right. So using it responsibly, it's the same thing like um, if you're fishing in a river, um, you don't want to fish in excess to the point that there are no more fish in the river. Right. And so um, I'm I'm for me, it's about finding that balance and thinking about your community as that as a kind of resource too. like whether we're talking about natural resources for the earth or we're talking about human resources like you want to share in the bounty of whatever plenty you have with your community and you know hopefully they'll also support you with their resources but the key is to not exploit anything and you know to the extent that it's no longer there and so i feel like i'm that the next phase of my work is about replenishing and renewal you know both in terms of my relationship with the earth and with natural resources and the environment, but then also thinking about what are ways that I can replenish and renew the communities that I'm a part of that have been devastated by exploitation of some sort. So that's what I'm contemplating right now. Sure. And, you know, you talk, you've talked a bit in this conversation about the U.S. invasion of Panama and you write about it in the collection uh, pretty vividly. Can you talk, I'm trying to place you in time, can you talk about um, your relationship to that personally and how it affected your family? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about it. It's kind of a sensitive topic, but what you see in the poem is this scenes from Operation Just Cause is me at two years old asking my mom if the good guys were there to get the bad guys when the U.S. invades 
right? And so I had a, that's how old I was when the invasion happened. And that was my point of view from, you know, in the moment of that event as a child. And what I have come to find is how it, that experience and not just the experience of the invasion, but really the legacy of the dictatorship and then the kind of shifts that happen in the country politically, economically, and socially afterwards is a history that continues to shape um, the reality of the experience in, in Panama now and is in a way, uh, you know, a, a haunting right? And these uh, ghosts that we have to contend with. Um, and so many people were traumatized by that era. And some of that trauma is only rearing its head now, because it takes, depending on who you are and what the experience is, sometimes the legacy of trauma can really reveal itself later, you know, talking about even decades later. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I'm constantly thinking about when when I see the war between Russia and the Ukraine right now. And uh, I think really about how the legacy of this conflict is something that is still going to be, we're still going to be figuring out how to think through it and what the what its true legacy is decades after, you know, whatever this is, like, if this ends tomorrow, it's still going to be something that we're talking about 20 years later, 30 years later. And that is the true cost of war. It's the lives that are lost. And it's also the ways that it changes and shapes a generation. Yeah, I'm kind of girding myself for the stories that we haven't heard yet. You know, we've heard so many horror stories already, but there's going to be so much more. And it's a uh, it's a big mess. And the last thing I'll say, speaking of big messes, you know, we spent a lot of time on your childhood, but your book has quite a lot to do with it. And it's such a rich part of this collection and such, you know, it's so obviously the foundation for all that you've done. But I want to talk about 9-11 because this is, if I'm correct, when you started to identify as a writer because you were asked, uh, I believe, in a school setting to write a commemorative poem about 9-11. And this was basically your debut or like the first time you really... I don't know, uh, wrote something that had such an impact on people and you kind of felt uh, viscerally the power of language. Is this accurate? Yeah. So I had a, a journal of poems that I used to keep since maybe about seventh or eighth grade. And when I was a freshman in high school, 9-11 happened and I was uh, at an international school and it was a challenging setting to witness 9-11 in because a lot of my classmates had very, were from different parts of the, of the world and had very complicated understandings of U.S., U.S. empire and its relationship to war. And, uh, you know, we were all so young and were searching for a way to process and to think through it. Uh, and so with my family's particular history with the United States, I felt very close to the event and having so many, so many family members, including several in New York when 9-11 happened, I felt particularly 
devastated in a way by the tragedy. And so I, I wrote this poem and I used to show my English teacher, Mrs. Mary Richards, my poetry, you know, kind of like privately and like on the sly. And I showed her this poem and she really liked it. And then when there was a, a program to honor those loss of the tragedy, maybe about a month later, I was asked by the principal to read the poem for the whole school. And I was still relatively new at the school. So some people didn't even really know who I was. And I read this poem in front of the entire school. And then people started to refer to me as the poet, you know, be, even before they knew what my name was as, as a fellow student at the school. And so it was a moment when I was, was told that that was what I am and who I am, you know, in a way. And uh, I think it was a pivotal moment because for me in high school, that's a moment when you're really trying to figure out who you are and um, what makes you unique and, and what kind of individual you are, who you want to be. And I've always loved literature and I've always loved language. And that was a confirmation for me that I should continue to explore it and pursue it. And so many people were moved by that poem that they came up to me afterwards and spoke to me and teachers and et cetera. And I got asked to write other poems and different occasions in the future. And I started to take myself more seriously so that these poems in my journal were not just rhymes that I was writing, you know, thinking about rap. It, they weren't just lyrics to songs that I wanted to sing, but they were really works of literature and works of art. And that kind of hope for my writing is one that I hope to pass on to my students, that they start to take themselves seriously as writers and to really know that they have the potential to create works of art, you know? And these are not just writing exercises that we're doing in class, but we're getting them ready to really go out there and engage with the transformative power of literature. Yeah, I mean, there's something that you said. I was reading an interview that you did and you were talking about something that you conveyed to your students about not chasing fame or chasing money or measuring the worth of one's work by these kinds of metrics, but you know, instead really trying to create art of like deep personal meaning and specificity. And I think you referred to, you're like, that's the cake. The rest is frosting. And I, <laughs> I found myself nodding. I was like, that's a lovely way to put it. And it's something that we need to hear more of because we live in a world where these metrics can tend to dominate, you know, and it feels very superficial and it can also be toxic and can feel oppressive to people, you know, who, <laughs> you know, are trying to navigate not only the demands of their art itself, but also all these other demands, you know, digitally and otherwise that, that they're not everybody's cup of tea. And they really ultimately are far afield from the, the thing that's most important. Absolutely. I think that especially when it comes to the performing arts, there's so much pressure to engage with social media and to use it as a metric in ways that performers when they audition are oftentimes asked about their social media presence because there is this understanding that if they, if someone with a, with a big digital imprint is cast in the show, it will help with the marketing of the show and to have emerging artists and student artists enter that sphere, I think is really, it distorts 
what it means to be an artist for them because they are not just thinking about what they bring to performance, but then they also have to think about marketing the show that they're a part of. And I think that that's adding to the responsibility that, <laughs> you know, that that's adding to the job description. That's not really what they're getting paid for. That's not what they're expected to be good at or um, be trained in. And I think that writers are in a similar boat the way that publishing oftentimes expects us to really in, uh, engage in social media and like, what does that mean? Um, as a metric to project your sales. And I think that what's most important is to really think about the ways that the work can affect the reader. You know, like that is the relationship that I really care about. There's this book that I read when I was in college called Notes on a Divided Country, and it's by Suji Kwok Kim, who's a Korean-American poet. And I love this book so much one of the things that the book does is that uh, it contemplates the legacy of civil war and u.s foreign wars on this family that then uh, migrates to the united states to become part of an empire and part of a history that also is part of their like decimation in a way and um exploring that space through literature and through poetry is something that as an undergraduate student, I just sunk my teeth into and was obsessed with because of my family's own history, right? And Panama's history and those relationships. And that book won a prize. It came out, it did well. It's not necessarily that well known, but it made a huge impact on me. And, you know, based on our conversation today, and I know you've read the book, I'm sure you can think of, you can imagine how it inspired me to be more vulnerable, you know, when exploring these topics and to find the courage to really um, ask these larger questions about legacy and trauma and war and citizenship and allegiance, right? Because there are there are books that might not be well known that are out there that do this. And it really impacted me and it moved me and it, and it made me understand my own family, my own culture so much more, even though it was written about a completely different country, a completely different community, and a very different history. And so that is what I think about whenever I'm writing is like, what kind of what new generation of, of writers, young or old, but what new crop of writers might be inspired by my work? What can I leave behind that hopefully creates a path for, you know, someone asking similar questions to continue and further their own e exploration? You know, in what ways can this intellectual inquiry also lead to healing and health and happiness? You know, like I felt so happy by the time that I finished that book because I knew that there are other families out there that had similar experiences to mine, though they might be different, right? It still comes to that idea of universality and specificity. Hmm. And so everyone who's listening, please check out Notes on a Divided Country by Suji Kwak Kim. It's a phenomenal collection. And there are many more, you know, that are out there. And I hope that one day in the future on some podcast, somebody's talking about, you know, the <laughs> what connection they had to the 
to the poems that I wrote because that that connection is what is what matters to me, you know, that impact. Well, no, you said it, I think, in the same interview that I was remembering, you said, like, that's the ultimate, like, retweet. That's the ultimate like, is when the work that you create artistically resonates with an individual soul, like, at that level. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's what we should be going for, you know? All of this kind of uh, superficial reciprocity that doesn't really amount to anything. Like, this is something that makes me bristle, is this notion that somehow social media connectivity is going to have a direct correlation to book sales. This has been disproven. I, I mean, sometimes maybe, like it, it can help a little bit. Sometimes maybe it might have like a, a, a more direct line of correlation, but more often than not, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you know, you can have 6,000 likes uh, and it, you know, that doesn't mean you're going to have 6,000 book sales. So I think, you know, it can be uh, kind of a, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? It's a, it's a way of getting one's priorities out of whack. It's not good for anybody. It's not good for the artist and it's not good for the person receiving the art. And it's just nice to hear somebody speak about it so eloquently. The, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. And there's so much that this collection does, you know, and we've really only talked about uh, kind of a, a part of it. And I don't want to part company without uh, addressing the issue of immigration. And, you know, you yourself, I believe, have described, I believe it was you who described these poems as coming from an in-between place. And these are also, this is also a collection that features poems that operate in a multitude of forms. There are interesting, like, dichotomies and collisions, like the erotic and the devotional. There's a lot of, um, you know, thematically, there's a lot going on with respect to intersectionality and identity, both racial, uh, sexual identity, we talked about the theme of home. And I just want to hear you talk a bit about your experience of immigrating. Uh, you touched on it a little bit, I believe, earlier. I think you mentioned moving to Texas. But if you could just talk about mm. that, that, that bit of travel. You know, we've talked about how you love travel. And obviously, immigration is a big travel adventure um, of a kind. So just if I could just hear your thoughts a little bit about how that experience affected you and then how it worked its way into the collection i have such a unique and weird coming to america story because i came to the united states to live for college and i came for college in new orleans and two months if not sooner after i had arrived hurricane katrina hit and then i had to moved to Houston in order to stay enrolled in a college after Katrina had hit, unless I wanted to go back to Panama. And so what ended up happening is I had spent a year at least in Panama planning to live in New Orleans. What school? And what school were you going to? It was Loyola University, New Orleans. Okay. So wait a minute. I know you were only there for a minute, but I have to ask because my aunt is an English teacher or was an English teacher until just recently. She was the chair, I believe, of the English department there. Ah. Her name was Jane Chauvin. Did you ever have her as a teacher? <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not. Oh, I did okay. not miss well, her. Yeah. You know, had Katrina not hit, I definitely would have had her. Um, so I'm sorry to, to have missed her. And, uh, you know, so I just spent this year planning 
to be in the in in New Orleans only to arrive to Houston with no plans. And there's a level of devastation that that I experienced, but none of it compares to the actual devastation that was Hurricane Katrina. And Hurricane Katrina was in a moment where the world opened its eyes to how the underbelly of racism and economic disenfranchisement and its connection to race was rearing its ugly head in cities like New Orleans because you could look at racial demographics according to real estate and then look and see what neighborhoods were in what flood zone and you'll see that most of the neighborhoods that were impacted the worst by flooding during Katrina were neighborhoods that had the highest black populations. And a lot of that comes down to class and it comes down to the way that class is racialized. And then it comes down to the way that redlining often happens and the way that black people can be left out of communities. And there's so much segregation according to real estate. This is to say that like for me, as someone who was new to the country, it was not only a rude awakening to the realities of life in New Orleans, that it's not all Mardi Gras and, you know, right. um, and debauchery, you know, and the best of ways. But it was also a, a rude awakening to the re- harsh realities of the American dream, which is that the little opportunity that there is oftentimes comes at too high a, a cost that can sometimes lead to the exploitation of others. And that for most people, it's an ideal that they never realize unless they're coming from a space of privilege. And, uh, you know, all of those concepts were really new to me at the time. And I think for a lot of people in the country, Katrina was a wake-up call. Katrina was an eye-opener. And so be new to the U.S. at that very moment was really was really rare and odd. I think the the questions that I was forced to ask as someone who evacuated New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina informs the questions that I ask in my poems about this country and its legacy overall. And so in that way, it impacts the positionality of the speaker in my poems because this is not just someone who is maybe new to the United States that is, you know, uh, just buying into the American dream, but it's one who comes with questions. Hmm. And then, you know, uh, the last thing uh, I want to touch upon, you know, is kind of a continuation of what we've been talking about. Identity, intersectionality, uh, sense of home, but it has to do with sexuality because, you know, not only are you uh, an immigrant, you know, you've moved from your home country to the States, you're entering college, you've, you know, you basically enter the country at a moment of intense national trauma, and you're right there at ground zero. But then at the same time, you know, you're not only trying to carve out an identity for yourself in America and kind of sort out who you are just as a person at that particular juncture in your life, uh, in, you know, adolescence, late adolescence or early adulthood, but you're also coming into your sexual identity and exploring that. That's a that's a tall order. That's a lot going on in a person's life. Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, I think it's it's my family story 
because, you know, my parents fell in love in the midst of a dictatorship. And so to fall in love in the midst of Hurricane Katrina, in the midst of Black Lives Matter, in the midst of all of these important historical moments of um, social justice, uh, you know, I think it's something that people in my family have been doing probably since the dawn of time, falling in love despite the slave trade, falling in love despite the violence of the construction of the Panama Canal, falling in love despite the U.S. invasion, you know? And so that for me is is where so much of these poems about sexuality come in it's because they're poems about love i mean you know and like any other 19 year old or 25 year old or you know 33 year old i was falling in and out of love and learning what it meant to be a lover and learning what it meant to be loved in a romantic way in a way that's beyond familial love and i was also searching for ways to start my own family. And if there's anything that I learned from my ancestors, it's how to not let the world get in your way and how love is ultimately what we're, what we're all striving to achieve in our human experience is not only how to feel love and how to give love, but how to pass love on right? How to give love to the next generation, how to love yourself and your community through the worst of the hurt, the worst of the pain, the worst of the trauma, right? It's about finding that joy and joy as resilience and joy as resistance. Well, I think that's a great way for us to end. It's certainly something that you can feel in every poem in this collection. And it's something that I think carries over into all the different aspects of your life and creative and professional lives. It's been a great pleasure to meet you. Congratulations on this book, this award-winning book. And I often, you know, I usually end by asking my guests if they're working on something new. I think you touched upon this a little bit earlier, but what, what do you have in the works that people can look forward to? Yeah, I have a few things that are in the works. I can't talk about them yet, but definitely stay tuned for more projects making their premiere in the fall and in in the fall of this year and in the spring of 2023. Excellent. Well, great. Thanks for your time. I will let you get back to your trip in the Dominican. I mean, I don't want to prevent you from going outside and enjoying what is surely a lovely day there. It's beautiful outside. And um, thank you for the opportunity of this interview. It was great. All right, you guys, that was Daryl Alejandro Holness, author of the poetry collection Stepmotherland, available now from the University of Notre Dame Press. You can find Daryl online at DarylHolness.com. He's also on Instagram. His handle over there is at BlackBoyTravelJoy. You can keep up with him as he moves around the planet one more time the new poetry collection is called stepmotherland go get your copy right now read it and enjoy the other people podcast 
is offered freely. This show, the entire archive, is made available to listeners free of charge. That's important to me. I'm trying to keep that going, and I need your help. This is a listener-supported show, so if you listen regularly and get something from the program, I hope you will consider supporting it. I have made efforts to make it as easy as possible to do so. For as little as $1 a month, you can support the show. You can pick your tier, essentially. $1 a month, $3, 5 10 20 whatever you can swing. It helps, and it is deeply appreciated. To do that, just go to patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash otherpplpod. And one more thing, as you move up the scale, in terms of your support, you can get other people gear, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, and so on and so forth. So check it out at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. My novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, is coming out this week on May 10th. If you would like to buy a copy, I would love that. That would be great. Trade paperback, ebook, or audiobook. I forgot to mention that I read the audiobook. So if you want to hear me read my book to you, you can do that. That is a possibility as of May 10th. If you would like to attend either in person or virtually some of my book launch events, just go to bradlisty.com, click on events. I would love to see you. I also do, which I'm not sure if you're aware of, an email newsletter. Did you know that? Once a week, I send out an email newsletter. It's pretty simple. I share a quick list of things that have caught my attention, things that I'm enthused about or found interesting. I think it's, you know, I think it's a nice email newsletter. It is not onerous, and it's only once a week. I'm not going to hammer you with emails. So you can sign up for that at bradlisty.com or at this show's official website, otherppl.com. This podcast also has its own app. Did you know that? The Other People with Brad Listy app. Go get it wherever you get your apps. Search for it by name, Other PPL. It's a good app. It's a great way to listen. It's free. This podcast is also available on YouTube. If you're a YouTube person, the entire archive of the program is available on YouTube. So go search for it by name, Other PPL, and hit the subscribe button. That helps. It's free. Last but not least, if you would like to rate or review this podcast or my novel, whatever the case, rating and reviewing, it helps. It takes a couple of minutes, but it helps things algorithmically. It helps other listeners or other readers find this stuff. So if you're a person who doesn't mind rating and reviewing, deeply appreciate it. And last but not least, I will be back on this program on Wednesday, but with Steve Almond hosting the show first time that's ever happened in 700 and what 72 episodes somebody else hosting the other people podcast and me as the guest answering questions so here we go here goes nothing i will talk to you soon